Father, we do thank you this morning, and we praise you for your tremendous grace and mercy and love towards us, that you not only delivered us from our our sin and the penalty of it through your Son, Jesus, but that you uh, enable us to, to walk with you today, and that you will bring us safely to glory. Father, I thank you that we can come together and to be built up and encouraged in your word, and I pray that is what will happen today. Lord, bless your word this morning as we hear it together. May we respond as you ordained, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you were to go to many different uh, churches this Sunday, you might find many different uh, ways to live the Christian life. You might find different paradigms and programs or whatever it might be to do what God calls you to do. You know, years ago, there was a heretical book that came out, The Purpose Driven Life. It was uh, there to tell you how to live the Christian life. And yet the reality was it was missing the main focus, the main point of the Christian life, which is Christ. We're going to see today that the only way we can live the Christian life is if God is living his life out through us. Would you turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, and we're going to see just that. How are we to live the Christian life? We're going to see that we are to be working out what God is working in. Now, in the book of Philippians, we've been looking at it, just a brief review of the context. It's about 62 AD. The Apostle Paul is under house arrest in Rome. Uh, He may go before Caesar, or he expects to go before Caesar. He may live or die. Um, He is uh, very close to the Philippian church in which he writes. About 10 years earlier, he was uh, graced with the the good news to bring to them. And we have the the Lydia and her household coming to faith, the Philippian jailer and her household coming to faith. And the Apostle Paul loves this church, and they love him. And we see that uh, he is concerned about them, but he wants to share, first of all, he is thankful And that's what we see in the beginning of the letter, that he is thankful for for God's past work in this this group of true believers. And that he is confident that God will complete that work that he began. And we saw within that that he wanted for them, and we see for us, and fall inspired by the Spirit, that we would grow in understanding and knowledge, that we would would gain a a greater love, in a sense, uh, that the love of Christ would abound in true knowledge and discernment in our lives, that we would be able to discern the excellent things, to make right choices in Christ. And he made it clear of his circumstances that God was using the circumstances of his imprisonment for good, for his glory, and that's what Christ, that's what Paul wanted, was Christ to be magnified. And we saw that, that whether he lived or died, Paul's, Paul's attitude was to live as Christ, to die as gain. But the Spirit of God had made it clear to Paul, basically, that he was going to continue on and that he would need to continue on to be useful for the faith of Philippians, as we saw. Now, after sharing his circumstances, he changed to the circumstances of the Philippians. And we saw very clearly that we, uh, the commands went to them, but for us, that we are to walk as heavenly citizens, worthy of the manner of the gospel. We are to be standing firm and striving together for the truth. And we are to know and not be afraid of our opposition, knowing that that lack of fear of them and trust in Christ is a sign of destruction for them, but yet salvation for us. And then we came into chapter 2 where we saw how we could maintain unity in the church by thinking like Christ. And we saw that in practice. That as true believers have the mind of Christ functioning, the same mind, we're going to be regarding one another as supreme over ourselves. We're going to be scoping out, looking for ways, aware to see others as more important than ourselves. And that comes when God's word is working in your heart in the midst of your everyday life. God prompts you and turns your heart to to have a desire to, to see others as more important than yourself. And we saw how this can be done. The only way it can be done is is to have the mind of Christ. And we were given the perfect example that we were to have. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. 
And we see that although he was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but took the form of a bondservant. And being found in the likeness of men, being as a man, he humbled himself, right? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We're to have that mindset of humble obedience before the Lord, that God's will would be done, and that will manifest in seeing others as more important than ourselves, specifically the Lord God and His will as we obey Him and thus serve one another. And then we saw because of Christ's great humility, taking on humanity to die for our sins, that He was greatly exalted and given the name that is above all names, that the name of Jesus, though the name He possesses, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And within that, we come to our passage today. And so we're going to see how we are to live the Christian life. When specifically, we're going to see that we are to be working out what God has and is working in. Verse 12. So then, I'm chapter 2 of Philippians. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence... Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is a fabulous portion of Scripture. And I believe it is one of the most succinct and perfect summaries of the Christian life. It's a fabulous portion of Scripture. And I believe we're going to see within this how we are to live the Christian life. We're going to first of all see the mandate to be working out our salvation. Then we're going to see the manner in which we are to do it and then the means in which we are able to do it. So first of all, how are we to do it? Let's take a look at the mandate. Notice we are commanded to keep working out our salvation. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The main phrase in our passage is just this, work out your salvation. That's the main passage. That's the main portion of this passage. And it is an imperative command. That means God is commanding us through Paul, inspired by the Spirit, to do this. It's in a plural. You all, Philippians, and applying to us, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And obviously this command to continually habitually work out our salvation with fear and trembling is directed to believers. For as we will see, only believers have salvation to truly work out. Only believers are saved. And notice he's directing this simply to that, to believers in in Philippi. So then, my beloved, my beloved. The Apostle Paul was very close to the Philippian church and they were very close to him. You see that. You'll see that in chapter 4, that, that when other churches didn't send anything, they sent for his needs. They were very gracious and faithful to support the Apostle Paul. They loved him, and he loved them. They were concerned about him within his imprisonment. And he says, so then, my beloved, they are his beloved. And notice our passage also starts with this term, so then. You could say, for this reason, or, or, or therefore... And so it's connected to what has previously been seen, what we've seen in Philippians. And what have we just seen? We've seen a set of commands for the Philippians. A set of commands for each and every one of us to do. First of all, conduct your manner, lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 27. Chapter 2, he said, make his joy complete by being of the same mind. We were to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than ourselves. We're to not merely look out for our own interests, personal interests, but for the interests of others. And the last command they were given was, have this mind which was in Christ Jesus. So then, with these things in mind, plus uh, keying off the, the wonderful exaltation of Christ as Lord, which every knee will bow... He's the Lord and his example of being obedient himself, humbling himself. So then, so then, you are to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
And so we look at that and we say, what does he mean by that? Work out your salvation or keep working out your salvation. It's two believers, obviously. Now notice our text does not say work for your salvation. It doesn't say that, but says work out. And there are some who would heretically misinterpret this passage and twist it to make it say what it doesn't say. To bring a false gospel that you should work out or work for your salvation rather than what it says here, to work out. But we know that if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, you've been justified by faith and not works, Romans chapter 4. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ that one is saved. It is not to work for your salvation, it is to work out something you already possess. Something you already possess. And it's very clear the Philippians were saved. Look, at, look back earlier in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of, of Christ Jesus, to what? All the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. He's writing to saints, not to ain'ts. He's writing to believers, those who have been set apart. They are holy because of Jesus Christ. And if you look uh, in verse 6, he says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work will perfect it, right? And in verse 7, the end of it, You are all partakers of grace with me. This is to believers. This is not to non-believers, not to fake believers, not to make believers. This is to believers. It's to believers. So if they were already saved, why would he tell them to work out something they already have? Well, I think the answer comes in a, in a biblical understanding of salvation. You see, the Bible portrays our salvation in three tenses. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, first of all, when we believed in Jesus Christ, we were justified. We were declared righteous because of Christ through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, when Jesus Christ paid the price for us by shedding his blood, paid the full price for our sins, when we trusted in him for salvation, his righteousness was applied to our account, and we were declared by God to be righteous. We were justified. We were justified. We were justified by faith. We have been saved already. For by grace you have been saved, right? Okay? But yet we also have a present tense experience of salvation. And that's what Scripture describes as sanctification. We were first initially set apart from sin unto God when we were saved. Now we're being set apart from sin, practically speaking, in our daily lives unto the Lord. We are being set apart for His glory. We see this in 1 Peter chapter 2, and we also see this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word, verse 2, that you may grow in respect to salvation. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13. God is sanctifying us, as we'll see, by the Spirit through his word. In the context of faith. Our salvation is ongoing right now as God is saving us in a sense from, from our daily sins to walking more rightly with him. Being set apart. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. But we should always give thanks to God for you. Or chapter 2 verse 13. For you, beloved brethren, by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation, and then it's through a present tense sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. He has chose us to save us, thus to sanctify us. This is the will of God, he would write back in First Thessalonians 4, your sanctification, that's part of our salvation. And then we have the future tense of salvation, like we saw in Philippians 1.6, uh, Paul said, I'm confident that the work he began, he will complete. And then we have in Romans chapter 13, the reality that our salvation, our ultimate, the ultimate culmination of our salvation is closer to us than when we first 
believed. This is a wonderful statement. Romans 13, verse 11. And do this, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to waken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. That's that future tense salvation of being glorified with the Lord. It's closer every day. Isn't that great? You think you're getting older? Well, you're getting closer to be with Jesus, right? It's closer every day. And so we have three tenses of salvation. We have past, present, and future. And what our passage is speaking about is the present tense reality of salvation. What God has done in us and thus is doing in us because he is in us. We're to work that out. We're to work that out. But what does that mean? Verse 13, So then, my beloved, Paul is very close to them, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now we're going to look at the beginning of this verse in a minute, but let's take a look at the command more specifically. This term, work out, or translated work out, is an interesting term. It comes from the Greek word, uh, ergodzomai, and it has an intensive force to it, kat ergodzomai. Well, what's ergodzomai? It's kind of where we get our term ergon for, which we get the term work from, but it's a more intensified version of it. The term ergodzomai means to work out or to, to, to bring forth something, but when you add that intensive kata on there, it means to fully accomplish something, fully bring it forth. There are other places in Scripture where this same verb is translated as such. Brings about. Produces. And, you know, we have trials produce, right? Or endur- it produces endurance, right? It brings about something to its conclusion. Accomplished, performed, carried out. It speaks of achieving something through labor. Achieving something through labor. Okay? So with that in mind, it speaks of bringing something to its ultimate conclusion. It speaks of not simply the work, but the goal of that work. You see, Greek language is a very wonderful language. It's very explicit and it's very visual. Not simply the work, but the goal of that work involved. So you say, okay, we're not to be working for our salvation. I understand that because we already possess it. But what does it mean to work it out? What does that really mean in practical terms? Well, we have to look specifically and notice that our passage, first of all, is connected to what we saw before. Therefore, right, and what did we see before? That Jesus Christ, as our perfect example, we were to have his mind who was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Right? We are to be like Christ, obedient, right, as we'll see. And our passage actually shows that truth. The context of our passage shows that working out our salvation speaks of obedience. Obedience. Look back in verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always, what? Obeyed. That phrase cannot stand on its own. It has to be connected to something else. Just as you have always obeyed. That's just only partial, right? Just as you have always obeyed, Work out your salvation. Just as you have always done so, now he says, he modifies that, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's speaking of obedience. It's speaking of the mind of Christ actually functioning in reality. You know, often we think like Christ, but we don't function like Christ. We don't actually do what he says. And if we're a hearer and not a doer, we're in trouble as we'll see. Our salvation should be working out of us. And that's what Paul is saying. He's actually saying, it is working out. Work it out like it always has been. But even more so now that I'm not around you. Even more so. So then, my beloved brethren, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, as in my presence only, but also now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The issue is obedience. As a humble servant, in the likeness of Christ, in terms of his mindset. In terms of his mindset. Folks, we were saved to learn God's word and then obey God's word. We weren't saved to learn God's word and never obey him. Right? 
Turn to Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, or what people call the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verse 19. Matthew 28. You see, we're going to see that sanctification is about obedience from a changed heart, an empowered life. It's, a, it's about obedience. It's about doing the right thing empowered by Christ, which many Christians choose not to do. And many Christians don't fear and tremble at the idea of not doing what is right. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Go therefore, and the, the verb here, the, the command is make disciples. And he's going to say how you do it. There's two ways, the two ing words. Go make disciples of all the nations. One, baptizing them. That means, hey, you don't disciple someone who's not saved, right? They can't grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus if they haven't been saved and outwardly brought forth that declaration, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then what? Verse 20. Teaching them to what? Observe. The word means keep. It means obey. Teaching them to obey. We don't just simply come here to be taught. You come here to be taught to obey the Lord. And that's some people's problems sometimes. They come to be taught, but they never obey. Jesus would say, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? If he is the exalted Lord, which he is, and which every knee will bow, therefore, as we have obeyed already, we should keep obeying him if we're real believers, right? As I mentioned earlier in James chapter 1, we see that there are those who are not saved, those who are not saved, who, who hear the word but don't do it because they don't have a salvation to work out. Turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Verse 21. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. By the way, the word is what God uses to bring us about a, a new birth, Right? born again through the living and abiding word. And it's the same thing he uses to change us and sanctify us. And he says, but prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. If you come here week after week after week and you hear the word of God and yet you don't obey Christ from a changed heart, you are deluding yourself. And notice what he says. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural natural face in the mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, that's the word of God, not having become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer, this man is blessed in what he does. What did the Lord Jesus do in his summary on his teaching on the mount? His final illustration was about those who build on the rock and who build on the sand. And what did he say the ones who build on the rock on? They are those who hear the word and do it. And those who build on the sand, they hear the word, but they don't do it because they're not building on the right foundation, right? They can't, as we'll see. They don't have a salvation to work out. So back in our passage, we see that we are to be working out our salvation. And Paul makes this point clear in Romans chapter 6 also. He says, but thanks be to God, through your, you were slaves to sin, you became obedient to the form of teaching, from the heart, from the form of teaching. You became obedient to the word of God. You became obedient to the truth. Working out our salvation, simply put, is obeying him. But it's not a rote obedience like the hypocrites. It is a heart-changed obedience where the mind of Christ is functioning in us, where his word is directing my thinking, and thus I step out in obedience. We're going to see that uh, to let go and let God is wrong. Yes, we do need to rely on the Lord completely, but we are also called and responsible to step out, as we're going to see, to step out and obey him by his power and strength. By his power and strength. The Lord Jesus prayed, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth, John 17, 17. When we have the mindset of Christ, which was humble obedience motivated by love, right? In a true relationship, we are to, just as we have always obeyed, work at our salvation continually obeying. And this is an amazing uh, encouragement for true believers. If you're a true believer, you have had your salvation worked out at a time. 
You have obeyed. The Philippians were obeying. They weren't perfect. There was some conflict going on. We'll see that in chapter 4. But they were obeying, by and large, the God of the Word and the Word, the word, of the God, word from God. Just as you have, Philippians, you are obeying. As you are, keep doing that. And so for us, we should be continuing to obey, right? That's the, ex- that's the encouragement for true believers. But some believers can get hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, right? And can stop obeying in some ways. And that's where we're going to see fear and trembling comes in in a moment. That we need to have a right attitude of not obeying the Lord. We need to have a right attitude concerning our relationship with the Lord. And how we work out our salvation. So here, just as you have always obeyed, work out your salvation, tells the Philippians... And he says here, just, and he says, not only in my presence only, but now much more. Isn't that true, true believer? We want to obey, right? And when we're around other believers, it's a little bit easier to obey, isn't it? Right? But when we're not around people that have that pressure to obey, in a sense, in a good way, sometimes we don't obey as we should, right? Paul says, in the same way you did in my presence, do it when I'm not here. Do it when I'm not here. Don't just obey when you're hearing the word being preached. Obey when you're not around, right? We're not around one another. Much more in my absence, he says. We know the temptation to say, oh, because of this person, that person, this is why I did this and that. No, no, no. Obey, no matter who's around you. Obey. Much more, brothers and sisters, we're to be working out our salvation with a changed mind, allowing him to change our behavior, salvation at work in us. Now, what would working it out look like specifically in this context? Well, as we saw, they were to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, right? They were to stand firm in the truth and to not be fearful of the opposition, to be afraid or just alarmed by it. They were to make Paul's joy complete by being of the same mind, not being anything from selfishness or empty conceit, but regarding one another as more important than themselves, seeing one as super above one another. They were to have the mind of Christ, to think like Jesus, who took on human flesh and humbled himself and obeyed, even to the point of death. Now, I don't believe the Apostle Paul is saying here when he says, work out your salvation, he's saying, just go out and do stuff. I don't believe he's saying that. We're going to see obedience is integrally tied to faith. Faith and obedience work together hand in hand. Indeed, in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul uses a phrase in the beginning of the book and in the end of the book that's the exact same phrase in Greek, and some translations have obscured it, and that's, that's sad. But he talks about that uh, faith that brings about obedience, the obedience of faith. Now, I don't usually like the NIV, but I, I like their translation here for Romans chapter five, 1, verse 5. Through him and his namesake, we receive grace and apostleship to call the people from among the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. When you trust in Jesus and his word works in your heart, it brings about obedience. And in the end of Romans chapter 16, it talks about the gospel that was brought forth and now manifested the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God. He has made known to the nations leading to the obedience of faith. And that other translation that we might believe and obey him. That's what he's doing. If you're a Christian and you're not obeying, something's wrong. Maybe you're not a Christian. You see, it's going to bring about obedience. Not perfect obedience, but obedience when we trust him. It's going to be seen in our lives. It's going to be seen in our lives. What does it mean to work out our salvation? It's working out that new relationship with the living God in which we have the renewed mind and by faith we trust him and we step out in obedience to a personal God and obey what he says. It's as his word works in our hearts we are changed. First Peter chapter 1, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit that you may obey Jesus Christ. God's Spirit setting us apart that we would obey him. Tremendous song. We sang it last week, so we're not going to sing it this week. And I wanted to sing it again, but trust and obey. Trust and obey, right? Tremendous song. Tremendous song that uh, trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, right? I mean, the hymn writer got it right. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. 
While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. You got it right. Got it right. Now, we need to recognize the Christian life is centered around obedience to the word and the God of the word. From a changed heart, what he is working in, we are to work out in reality. We're to be doers of the word. You see, if you're not obedient to the word, you're not a believer. I'll tell you that right now. First John chapter 2, verse 3. And we have, no, by this we know we have come to know him if we keep his commandments or his commands. That's not speaking about perfectly because earlier he said, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. It's talking about a changed heart that by and large does what God says. There's not a rebellion in your heart against God and his word. Again, what did Jesus say to those who thought they were saved but were not? Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Luke 6, 30, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord and not do what I say? Why don't you do what I say? Some of you here are having trouble working out your salvation because you don't have a salvation to work out. And that goes either two ways. It either goes to legalism where it's all external or it goes to just free for all who cares. You've never truly come to faith in Christ. There's no heart change. There's no power to to obey. But the Lord can change you today if you're willing to turn to him. If you're willing to realize you need salvation in Christ. If you're willing to obey the gospel. Now, for believers, obedience, sometimes we, we don't obey like we should, right? And maybe some of you have slowed down in your working it out. You've allowed your mind to be corrupted with the world's mindset, worldly philosophies. You're, you're getting your input from the world through, through groups or whatever, or, or counselors, whatever it is. We're on the line, the word of God to change your heart. You've allowed the world's mindset and your own will and thoughts to get in the way. And so you're not working it out. You're not trusting the Lord with all your heart. You're leaning on your understanding. Confess it and obey God. Confess it and obey God. We are to be thinking differently and thus obeying, working out our salvation continually, habitually. Keep doing it. Keep obeying. Don't stop. Keep working it out, true believer. Keep working it out. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in, as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, keep working out your salvation. It's ongoing tense there. But yet, notice there is a manner in which we are to do so. It is not a flippant manner. Notice what he says, with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. This is a serious issue. We live in a society that's not serious about anything but our own will and desires. This is a serious issue. You hear people who don't care, they don't value life, whatever it might be, our society is going downhill. But we are different. We're to have a different mindset. When we are tempted to absorb the world's mindset concerning any area in our lives, whatever it might be, we better start fearing and trembling as we're going to say. We're to work out our salvation with, and the two words here are phobos and traumas. And what does that mean? It can't mean we're shaking in our boots every day because later on Paul's going to say rejoice in the Lord, and again I say rejoice. It doesn't mean we're walking out around in, in absolute fear and terror. So what does it mean? Well, we're going to see there's an element of still the reality of those, those words. One uh, pastor writes, I think, uh, he says, the word fear, phobos, first had the meaning of flight, that which is caused by being scared, that which causes flight. We get our English word phobia from this Greek word. And the word in itself is a strong word. But Paul wants to strengthen it even further. Look at the next word. The word tremble, traumas, means to shake involuntarily with fear or excitement or cold. We get our English word trauma from this Greek word. These words graphically portray to us the depth of fear Paul wants us to feel as we work out our salvation. In other words, as we live out our life in obedience. What does that mean? Obviously, this fear and trembling is in reference to God, right? Because Jesus is Lord of all, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess. But what does it mean? What does it mean? 
I think we're going to see in reference to God, we have to have a proper view of not working out our salvation, not obeying. We need a proper view of sin, a proper view of sin and of God, and I don't think we have it at times. We need to tremble in fear to, in respect to the prospect of sinning, of sinning, which we don't often. We just take worry and fear and anger and irritation. All we say, we just say, no big deal, right? We should say it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Turn to Exodus chapter 20. And accounting this, and talking about this account in Exodus 20 where God spoke from the mountain, even Moses was there. In Hebrews chapter 12, 21, it says, So terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. Exodus chapter 20. Don't take things lightly, as we're going to say. Exodus 20, verse 18. And all the people perceived the thunder and lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then Moses said, speak to us. Then they, then they said to Moses, excuse me, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But not God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid or fear, for God has come in order to test you in order that the what? Fear of him may remain with you. Why? So that you may not sin. A proper reverence and fear for the living God, it causes us to think more closely about sin, to think about those things, to see the value, the negative value, in a sense, of sinning much more greatly. Now, within this, we see there are other places where in the New Testament we have fear coming because of sin. I'm not going to read the whole passage, but in Acts chapter um, five, we have the account in the beginning of the church of Ananias and Sapphira, who lied, right? Ananias and Sapphira, who lied, and basically within that, uh, Ananias, after he was confronted for his lying, uh, he fell down dead, right? And they said to him, and great fear came upon all who heard it. And the same thing with his wife, who also lied and, and then was then was stricken down in God's punishment or discipline, whatever one, we don't know. We'll find out in heaven, right? And great fear came upon the whole church. Great fear. There are consequences to sin. And when we don't fear God, we don't fear the consequences, right? Or we don't value the price paid to deliver us from those consequences, Without a proper attitude of fear and trembling, we might look at sin with a haphazard attitude. This attitude forgets the absolute hatred that God has for sin and the price that was paid for us to be delivered from sin. Psalm chapter 4, verse 3, But know the Lord has set apart for himself, set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him, Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart on your bed and be still. Selah. Offer sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Where then is a house that you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, God says, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. Ultimately, we need to have a healthy fear of sin, but that is ingrained in a healthy fear of God. A healthy fear of God. You see, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1 that we are to conduct our lives in fear, and the reason why is knowing the price that was paid to redeem us from our sin. Sin is not a small thing with God. And when we make it a small thing, we are not fearing and trembling before him in that sense. One pastor puts it this way, the salvation spoken of here is not justification, but sanctification, victory over sin and living a life that is pleasing to the Lord Jesus. They are to see that they are to make progress in their Christian lives. They are to do so with fear and trembling. This is not slavish terror, but a wholesome caution. This fear is self-distrust. It is tenderness of conscience. It is a vigilance against temptation. It is a fear in which inspiration opposes high-minded 
in, in the admonition, be not high-minded, but fear. It is taking heed lest we fall. It's the constant apprehension of the deceitfulness of the heart and the insidious power of inward corruption of sin is the caution and circumspection of timidity and timidity which shrinks back from that which would offend or dishonor God, our Savior. Is the essence of human responsibility. I'd agree with that. We are to conduct ourselves with fear. And I think we live in a culture, a church culture right now, that has basically no fear. No fear. You go to church these days and you look at the services, there's a, the healthy fear of God is, is gone. No wonder there's so much disobedience. When there's no fear of God, there's a lot of disobedience, by the way. Right? When there's no fear of how, what this does to him, what it, what it brought about in his son going to the cross. Folks, the church has it backwards. Pastors should be fearing the Almighty God, knowing there's a stricter judgment. That they'll stand before him giving account for every word and deed. The solemnly charged to preach the word. And those who don't are in disobedience and make it clear they don't fear. And the same thing goes for each and every areas of our lives. There needs to be a healthy, righteous fear of the Lord. You see, the non-believer, the scripture says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. It should not be that way for us. And we're going to see the fear of God and obedience are tied together. Turn to Psalm 34. Psalm 34. And while you're turning there, I'm going to read a couple short psalms as you turn to Psalm 34. Psalm 96.9, Worship the Lord in holy attire, tremble before him all the earth. Psalm 2, Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Psalm 34, we have the instructions from David inspired by the Spirit. Verse 7, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who what? fear him. And rescues them. Isn't that wonderful? And guess what? When you fear the Lord, you're not trembling and in, 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 in being afraid. There's a wonderful reality you start to realize and taste and understand his goodness. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. This is to each one of you, saints. For those who fear him, there is no want. He takes care of you, right? The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me, and I will teach you what? The fear of the Lord. I'm going to teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves lengths of days that he may see good? Here's the fear of the Lord. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil, do good, seek peace, and pursue it. It's working out your salvation. It's obeying. It's obeying. The fear of the Lord and obedience to him are integrally tied. We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And again, it's not being afraid of God and shaking. It's a reverence for him. And there are a couple passages in the New Testament I want to look at before we finish here that show us these words, fear and trembling, together also. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is addressing the pride of the Corinthians. They're saying, hey, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. They're raising man up when man is nothing. It is God who does the work. They were elevating people and looking to them. And they were boasting, not in the Lord, but in those things. And the Apostle Paul says, hey, i got to share with you my attitude of how I came to you. I didn't come to you as some super saint with great wisdom of words. It's not how I came. First Corinthians 2. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaim to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's all about Jesus. And he says, I was with you in weakness and in much fear and in much trembling. Now, did Paul come and shake and while he was preaching? No, but he had a right reverence for God. And therefore, he shared the word of God so that their faith would not rest on men, but on God. Another example is 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Turn there, 2 Corinthians 7. It talks about the response of the Corinthians to Titus. And that response was based on a changed heart. You see, Paul had written them and convicted them, and they were made sorrowful. 
But they were made sorrowful, not with a worldly sorrow which leads to death, but a sorrow about sin that leads to repentance. And that was exemplified in how they received Titus, who was associated with Paul. They could have said, ah, it's that guy with Paul, we don't want to receive him. They didn't receive him that way. They received him differently because their hearts were changed. 2 Corinthians 7, 13, For this reason we are comforted, and besides our comfort, we are re- rejoice even much more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if anything, if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I have not been put to shame. Second Corinthians, uh, this is seven fourteen. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so is our boasting before Titus, before Titus proved to be the truth. And his affection abounds all the more towards you as he remembers, look at this, the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. You received him in a, in a right heart. He is a representative of the Lord. He's associated with Paul, obviously. He's a brother in Christ. You received him rightly with honor and respect in the context of what God had done in your hearts, convicting you of sin, right? And bringing forth a repentance. And there's one last portion here in which we see fear and trembling. One last portion in uh, Ephesians chapter 6. Turn to Ephesians 6. It's a right heart attitude towards the Lord and towards doing the wrong thing. All right? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. With what? Fear and trembling. Wow. Non-believers, masters, treat you really bad? Yes. With an attitude of respect and reverence and care that you don't sin in the prayer presence. Notice what he says. He says here, in the sincerity of your heart as to what? Christ. Not by way of eye service as man pleases, but slaves of Christ. What? Doing the will of God from the heart. Fear and trembling will result in doing the right thing. If I'm coming with respect and fear for the Lord, I'm going to act that way before my earthly bosses because I'm serving the Lord and I'm going to be careful that I don't sin and stumble him. It says, With good will render service as to the Lord, not to men, knowing whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. How about you? In your work, do you work with fear and trembling, that right attitude towards, I better, I don't want to sin, Lord, I don't want to blow it. I want to do my work unto you. I do it unto you. Do you work with fear and trembling? What about your relationships? Well, today we see that we are all to work out our salvation on a continual basis with fear and trembling. And folks, there are some of us who need to confess we have not had the right attitude of reverence towards the Lord. We've let sin go. Attitudes that are wrong. Sin. That God says is sin in his word. Let it go. Not valued it and said what it really is. Lord God, I blow it. This is wrong. It is wrong for me to be angry. It is wrong for me not to forgive. It is wrong for me to worry and not trust you, Lord God. It is wrong for me to have a wrong attitude towards someone else. It is wrong, Lord God, for me not to do my work hardly unto you. It is wrong, Lord God. It is wrong for me to gain the world's wisdom for my life choices. It is wrong for me not to trust in you for everything. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What's your attitude towards sin in your own life? We all sin. We all fail. What should our attitude be towards it? We should have a healthy fear of God, and we should tremble before him in a sense. It says, David said, do not sin. And when we do, praise the Lord, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. But we need to think more. We need to raise and elevate our fear of God and the relationships we have, marriage, whatever it might be, that we don't sin against one another in the mercies of God. In our relationship here in the church, in the way we think of people, and whatever it might be, we need to raise our fear of God and we need to allow him to work out as we'll see what is in us in our actions. And notice the means and how this happens Back in our passage. So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but much more in my absence, 
work out or keep on working out your salvation, that relationship you have with Jesus, you're trusting in Him and you're obeying, right? Work that out in real time, in real life. Obey the Word of God with fear and trembling. And notice we have an explanation for. It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. We are to be working out our salvation with fear and trembling for because God is at work in us. You can't separate these two verses. You see, it is because God is at work in us that we are able to work out what he is working in, right? Human responsibility with divine enablement. For it is God who is at work in you. There's a different word for work here. The other one we saw was that spoke talked about doing work to its completion in a sense. Here the term is energio. Energio, we get our word energy from that, right? It comes from ergon to work and then en, which intensifies it. It speaks of being at work or bringing forth power. You should be working out your salvation, letting it come out to its completion in a sense, and let it manifest in obedience because God is at work in you. And you could literally say it this way, for God is the one working in you. If you're a true believer, God is working in you. That work began when you were convicted of your sin and you trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And he is working through his word to change us. He is working in us, and he says, let that work out of you. Let the mindset that is changed by the word of God, trusting in him, relying in him, function in the context of obedience. You know, we have a lot of passages that speak about obedience and how we can't do it apart from God, God working in us, right? Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So as I trust the Lord and his word works for me, I step out in faith and I obey him in those areas that come before me in my life. I obey him when I'm tempted to respond wrongly. I confess when I, when I do. For God is at work in you. He is the one working in you. The living God is working in every true believer. And because he's at work, we're to work it out. Because he's at work in us. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we're not adequate to consider anything coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. He's at work in us. Philippians chapter 4, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 2 Peter chapter 2, or chapter 1, we've been given everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him by his precious and magnificent promises. Let that work out. Let that work out. Sanctify them in thy word, thy word is truth. The word working in us, that we may grow in respect to salvation. God is working in us by his spirit. And if you step out in obedience, he will empower you to do what he says. In Ephesians chapter 1, the apostle Paul prayed uh, concerning the things that he wanted believers to know. These things that you know what, what, what God has done. And the last one he shared out of three was this tremendous truth. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards those who believe. If you trust him, his power is on your side. He is working. He is, ex, he is, ex, he is a bringing forth energy in a sense, power, his power in us. Ephesians chapter 3, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond what we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. God is working in us. So work it out. So work it out. God is at work in us, therefore work out your salvation, obey. And what a tragedy. So many Christians uh, obey because of outward pressure rather than God's inward work. The God who loved us so much is changing our hearts. Work it out. And it's what a tragedy. So many Christians think because God at work, they'll just sit back. Not true. We're to work it out. We're to obey. We're to be doers of the word, not simply hearers who delude themselves. One pastor writes, the Christian life is not a series of ups and downs. It's rather the process of ins and outs. God works in and we work out, right? 
We have a responsibility in our sanctification to trust the Lord and rely on him, but then step out in that and obey him. Will you obey him next time you're tempted to worry? Do not fear, do not worry, right? Will you obey him next time you're tempted to be angry? Be angry, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down your anger. Will you uh, obey him when he says that we're love covers a multitude of sins? Will you obey him when we're supposed to endure under harsh uh, treatment? Second, First Peter chapter 2. Will you obey him being ready to give an account for the hope that you have, yet with gentleness and reverence? Will you obey him not leaning on your own understanding, getting the world's input for, for the way you think in your life about medical issues, whatever it might be? Will you do it? Will you work it out? Will you work out what's been worked in? Notice as we finish here that the Lord is accomplishing something. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now as I studied this, it was difficult to interpret this part and what you're saying why. Well, because so many people say to will speaks of our will and then to work speaks of our work and I don't believe that's the case. He is at work in us to do his will and to bring about his work in us. That's the direction that he is at work in us. He's at working to bring forth his desire. He's working to bring forth his work. We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Now you could literally say the goal is, is to, uh, he says, for his good pleasure, but in the Greek it's on behalf of his good pleasure. He is willing and working in us on behalf of his good pleasure. His good pleasure. The term good pleasure, eudokia, means that which pleases. That which pleases. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the kind intention. That's not a good translation. Your New King James has that which pleases. That which pleases. He chose us to be his children, and it's pleasing to him. It's to please him. The word is translated well-pleasing in Luke chapter 10, verse 21. God is at work on us on behalf of his good pleasure. It pleases God when the life of Christ is worked out in us. It pleases him. When we, by faith in Jesus, obey him, it pleases God. We're to try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord, right? We're not to learn what's true and, and step forward on it. God is pleased with Jesus, and when we allow Christ to change our hearts and minds, when we think like him, when we then step out in obedience like him and obey him, serving him, he is well pleased. He's well pleased. And all that's in the context of faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. You trust in the Lord. True believer, God is at work in you. And you've been obedient if you're a true believer. You have. You've, you've trusted him. You've obeyed in areas of your life because you're, you're a new creation. You've done it. But keep working it out. Maybe you stagnated. Maybe you stagnated. Confess those sins and start again working out your salvation. It's a command with fear and trembling. Some of us have lost that sense of fear and trembling. We're, we may be working it out, but we don't really fear the consequences of sinning against God. We don't fear what it brought about his son going to the cross. We don't fear and tremble before him. We need to raise our view of, of sin and raise our understanding and work it out with fear and trembling. So how are we to live the Christian life? Work out your salvation just as you've always obeyed. Work it out with fear and trembling because God's working in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. There's some of you here today who are not working out your salvation because you don't have a salvation to work out. You don't. And you can. You can trust in Christ and be saved. And then for the rest of us today, the command is, is clear. Keep working out your salvation with fear and trembling because God is working. Father, I thank you so much for this passage. It is so encouraging and, and convicting. And I just pray for the true believers here today that they would obey your word, that we would obey your word, that we would keep working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Father, that we would recognize that you are at work in us, 
to desire or to will and to work in us that which pleases you. Lord, may we make it our desire to please you. May you change our hearts that we would be obedient to this. May you convict us today of those areas in which we have not feared and trembled over sin in our lives. Would you convict us in areas where we have not been working it out? Thank you, Lord God, that you're faithful. Thank you for your word and thank you for your son. It's in his name we pray.